And welcome to the Thinking God podcast, where we try to let a little light in by talking to people who are out there trying to make a difference in the world, uh, people who are thinking about uh, faith and hope and reasons for both of those things in, in life and how they manifest themselves. Uh, the last couple of podcasts, we've talked to folks who've been working for social justice, and that's not going to change again this week. Uh, I talked to Alba Onofrio and really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a few weeks ago now, they had just come out of uh, a couple of days where they got arrested for protesting at the National Religious Broadcaster Association down in Florida, and I'll, we talk about that uh, during the podcast so she can tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, I tried to put together a bio on her. Her best bio is she's part of a, a, a group called Soul Force. That's soulforce.org if you want to check out their website and see what they're up to. She is their spiritual strategist. And she believes that an abundant life and is fully embodied through loving affirmation of the Spirit, and thus she vehemently rejects any notion that the divine perpetuates fear, harm, and domination of peoples. She has a Master's of Divinity from Vanderbilt University, and she's focused on race and gender theologies of sex and sexual ethics based on in, in queer desire and as a Southern Appalachian Latino femme. Alba has found cultural and political home in the Southerners on new ground while working for queer liberation in the South and at the intersection of race, class, culture, gender, and sexuality. Um, she is passionate about a lot of things. Uh, she's been a teacher. She's a North Carolina native and has some great stories to tell, and I really enjoyed talking to her, and I think you will enjoy our conversation on this week's Thinking God podcast. I had one minor uh, technical issue, and our, our discussion picks up talking about one of Alba's um, most uh, influential uh, folks in her life, and we'll pick it up as that conversation had just gotten underway. White, uh, when he was kicked out of the church for being gay, and uh, he really led a group of folks back then who were really focused on uh, inclusion and acceptance of LGBT people within church uh, communities and denominations. What was, and what was, his, what was his name? His what was his name, name was- again? Uh, Reverend Mel White, and he wrote a book called Stranger at the Gate. And as recently as last Sunday, I was in a church here in Orlando, Florida, and the preacher, the head minister of a church, got up and said that that uh, book, that she read it and it saved her life. So I hear on a very regular basis from LGBT people of faith who have who read that book somewhere along the way, and it just um, shifted them and healed them in ways that made life more possible um, in the fullness of who they were. So lots of props to Reverend Mel White, um, who started our organization. And I joined about three years ago now. Um, Soulforce came looking for me, actually. I was still in divinity school at Vanderbilt, and um, Soulforce came to town, and I went to interrogate them and see what they were about and what they had to say about us, uh, particularly as a national organization coming into the South. Uh, Being from the South my whole life, I felt really protective of that and uh, wanted to see what they were about and had a great conversation with our executive director, Haven Heron. And um, it just began a a friendship and a dialogue that led to me really uh, stepping out into faith, uh, into the organization that was kind of restructuring at the time um, to create a new generation of soul force. Well, let's back up a a little there. Uh, Where did you grow up in the South? 
I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, I was raised um, in West Asheville. Uh, oh, I know, well. know it well. Yeah, I went to the same high school my grandfather and grandmother went to. And um, yeah, I have Except moved. when they went to high school, it wasn't a hippie town. It was a. <laughs> No, no, it wasn't. In fact, uh, it's interesting because uh, I'm Latina and um, my dad's side of the family is white. And so the school that they went to um, wasn't was segregated when they went. And so if I uh, had gone to the same school that they did uh, just two generations back, I wouldn't have been allowed to attend that same school uh, because of the color of my skin. So it's a really interesting shift over the course of time. I'm in a complicated family history um, in that way. Well, Al, how did how did faith shape your path growing up? Oh, honey, I was raised Southern Baptist, and uh, we lived. <laughs> yes, yes, and um, I grew up right across the street from church, so I was there. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, every revival, Wednesdays when the people came in to clean the church, I was there for choir practice, you name it. Whenever those church doors were open, I was there. Um, so it was the center of my um, family life. It was a center of my community life and our access to uh, friends and resources. Um, I was raised by my great-grandmother, so we really depended on the church community to help us grow grocery shopping, for example, or um, get me to school and those kinds of things. So it was the center of my world, um, and it informed and still informs most of who I am in the world. I don't think that they quite anticipated that they would get the handful that um, that I have come to be. Um, but I am delighted and grateful for, um, how I was held in community and in a community of faith. And you feel like that, uh, what, what you grew up in did have a profound influence on where you are now? Oh my goodness. Yes. My, my word. It's so, it's so much the case. Um, for example, I took them really seriously when they told me that, um, that I was created in the image of the divine when they told me that God was with me wherever I go, that I could talk to God anytime, day or night, and God was just waiting to listen to me. I even took them seriously when they told me that I was the daughter of the king, the king of kings. And so um, all of those messages to me as a child growing up um, and as an only child uh, in my household of a very doting and loving great-grandmother really made it so that when I came out at 15 and got expelled from my group of friends at school, um, ostracized within my own family, ostracized from my church community, that in my 15-year-old know-it-all mind, I was very clear that me and God were just fine and the rest of the world was wrong. Um And that audacity came from what I had been taught around my own personal relationship with God and how I could pray and my understanding of how to name and communicate with the divine um, and check in with my heart and what was true and what was authentic. So, yes. (laughs) Alba, did anybody uh, come alongside you when you were 15? How did that sort of develop? No, you know, I didn't know any gay, queer, trans people at all. We were... uh, we were pretty tightly insulated in my church communities um, and social communities. And 
so I felt really alone and was part of a religious community and and used the same rhetoric about how homosexuality was something that was chosen and how it was a sin and how terrible it was until I myself had an experience um, with another teenage girl who I was totally in love with and um, utterly um, convinced that, that that was the most true and authentic expression of my own personhood was to be in relationship with her. And so, um, no, I, I really felt very alone at that time. Both of us felt very alone at that time. Um, but it was very much my struggling with God around what is this whole theology thing um, that allowed that process to continue and for that not to be something that was shameful, but rather um, of a source of of reorienting my theology and my knowing towards something that embraced uh, authenticity in life rather than death and, you know, um, very crypt-like feeling boxes of enclosed right and wrong around gender and sexuality. Well, who were some of the biggest influences on you from this move from being raised in a Southern Baptist situation where, uh, you know, when you did come out and no one was really all that excited to hear the news, <laughs> understatement, I'm sure. But how did, <laughs> how did you move from that to to divinity school and all? How, how did your understanding change? Who influenced you most? What books, people? Or were, there, were there certain things that really helped you begin to intellectually and emotionally find ways to uh, discover the things you're talking about? Oh, that's a great question. And honestly, there was a solid decade between the time when I came out and had my first high school love and um, when I actually like came fully into my queerness. Um, I met a life partner during that time. We had a pretty have had a pretty like celebrated normative seeming relationship and things like that. But uh, I went to college and after college spent um quite a long time in the immigrants' right movement. And it wasn't until I started uh, getting some more information and education around systems of injustice like racism, like xenophobia, like classism, sexism, um, that I really started to have some language to understand how the different pieces fit together around why certain things are, are assigned to be morally upright and correct and certain other things are considered um, immoral or wrong. And it was connecting those dots around systems of injustice and oppression and understanding more and more about our histories of how um, religion in particular gets used as a tool uh, to create power imbalances, um, learning about how the Bible, the exact same Bible that had been used against me was the exact same Bible that was used uh, to perpetuate slavery um, and how those same words could be used in this other context. And over time, people could become very clear that that was absolutely incorrect, that, in fact, uh, enslavement of any human being by another was was morally um, a moral outrage. And so that flexibility of starting to learn about how uh, religion wasn't just this pure thing that came down that was just a matter of heart and faith, but rather something that could be uh, stolen and co-opted and flexed around different systems to make um, 
wrong things seem right and right things seem wrong. And that really started allowing that possibility of like, how do these things fit together? Pushing for justice for immigrants um, and for people of color really was part of my um, entry into working on LGBTQI stuff and rights and being in close community with other queer people and finally having a name and having things like the internet. Um, Hell, when I came out, Ellen wasn't even out on television. That was even before internet, you know, so there's a, it's a very different moment from when it was when I was growing up um, in terms of access to community and resources and seeing ourselves portrayed in books and movies and other things like that. So culture shifted and I shifted um, along with it, but my work for justice is really the thing that allowed me to connect more of the dots and find my own place and my own identities within it. And divinity school happened because as happens for many of us who get a call, uh, God said, if you don't like how things are, then get up off your your keister and get into divinity school and do something about it. And um, I never dreamed that Someone who was a woman, a mother, like Latina and queer and out and non-monogamous and all these things would ever be allowed uh, in a seminary because it certainly wouldn't have been in any of the seminaries um, that I was connected with in terms of the Southern Baptist world. Um, And sure enough, I did apply Uh, after much prodding by God and my beloveds and um, got accepted and wound up going to divinity school thinking, surely it was a mistake, um, and yet uh, had an amazing experience um, going through theological education um, and really coming into my own in terms of how to connect my ethics and ideas and theologies based on what people have been studying and working on for a really long time that I just wasn't aware of. Well, it's been, it's been said the only people who believe the Bible literally are fundamentalists and atheists. And uh, <laughs> what, uh, how has the Bible shaped where you are today, and what role does it play in your approach to, to not— I think you, you were talking about your uh, approach to helping one community. Are you still working on justice for immigrants and other things, too, or are you pretty much devoting most of your time to the current community? I'm just trying to get that clear. Yeah, I mean— I work at the intersections of lots of my identities. And so for me, working on uh, Christian fundamentalism and Christian supremacy as it's used in the political sphere um, and the cultural spheres of our world is really the way in which, for me, I'm getting at all of those issues. But yes, I'm still deeply um, invested in immigrants' rights work, in um, race anti-racism um, work, as well as Um, deepest in uh, queer communities. But, you know, those overlap. A lot of our queer people are also people of faith or coming from Christian backgrounds and really want to work on that spiritual healing and reclamation. And lots of our queer folks are people of color and immigrants. And so I just find that the more deeply I get into it, the more intersecting and overlapping all of these issues are and the same more system that is harming us is the more that is across the board, the same thing, the same crap that we're working on. Um, so that feels like it's all all intertwined and overlapping. What about the role of Scripture and the role of the Bible? You're talking about studying the Bible more, of course, and you have, you know, of course, I, I went to two seminaries. I know sometimes studying the Bible in seminary for a test sort of dries it of any meaning. <laughs> but uh, what role does the Bible play in, in, in what you're doing in all these, these fields? 
Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because um, I feel like I was trained up as a child and a young person and a youth in the church in a particular reading interpretation of Scripture in a way that was absolutely um, rigid and, and flexible, and I couldn't even get outside of that interpretation on my own without having some help and doing some more theological um, reading around how other theologians and Bible scholars had interpreted stuff. So I'm just so grateful for institutions of higher education like Vanderbilt Divinity School that really have help us grapple with the text and what it means and what it says and and uh, push us to come to our own faithful conclusions about what we find there. And so what I find to be true is that um, I use the Bible every day. Uh, I feel like for me, uh, it was really important to go back and reclaim some of those stories. So, for example, uh, Soulforce has put out in the past few months um, a resource that I edited on Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the real story or one interpretation about how, what's what it's actually about, which is um, not what you think or not what we've been taught um, to think. And so I find that it's really important not only for conversations, with folks who are of opposing views um, to meet in to meet where they are rather than saying, okay, but can we leave the Bible behind? I find it actually a much more effective uh, way to engage in conversation to say, okay, if we're going to start with a literal interpretation, I'll meet you there. Let's go to the, let's go to the Bible. Let's, let's go, let's go from your context. Um, which one says that we're not afraid to have those conversations, even in someone else's uh, context, and that we can also study the Bible similar to um, conservatives and fundamentalists. But it also, uh, for me, I find that it it creates a common language. So it feels really important for me, actually, to be able to have conversations about Scripture. And even though I don't have it memorized, as some of my counterparts do, um, I do have a deep connection to those words that have been used as a guide um, to more or less literal interpretations of the thing. I do definitely feel like it is a language that I am versed in because of my background and something that is so important to so many people that it just feels responsible of me if I want to engage in those hard conversations to be able to meet people there in Scripture. And similarly, I find that folks— um, who are coming from very conservative Christian backgrounds, who for whom the Bible has been used as a weapon, it is really important to be able to, to open the Bible and go back to some of those scriptures and narratives and really dig in and take a look. Um, because the Bible is full of stuff. I mean, I just, there have been so many folks for whom they have opened the Bible for the first time in many years um, in one of our sessions, and they are utterly surprised by what they find there. You know, the the Bible has stories that were taught me one thing and actually say in black and white a different thing. There are words that are translated, such as homosexuality, um, that are actually not, those, those words didn't even exist until centuries after the text was written. I find that people don't know much about Bible history, particularly how long after Jesus' death were the Gospels written and how long was was it centuries later before the New Testament congealed as a solid thing? 
um, and what that means when we look at, at Scripture, but also just to look at what the Bible has to offer. When I think of some of the most uh, intense love and sexual-based uh, scriptures. I'm thinking of Song of Songs. When I think of suicide and mental health issues, I think of the Apostle Paul and some of his struggles around um, his own celibacy, around whether or not uh, to leave this earth or to stay, as he says. And there's just a lot of really applicable stories that if we understand the Bible in, in terms of what it was, what it is, and what it has to offer us, that there's different ways to engage it that don't have to mean um, death of our spirit or our bodies, but rather a really great conversation partner. Yeah, I've run into a lot of people over the years who start describing the God they don't believe in, and I realize I don't believe in that God either. They've been given such a mis, mis uh, a misguided definition of who God is. What do you see as the core gospel message, Alva? Oh, beloved, I'm so glad you asked that, because um, I consider myself an evangelical in that regard. And um, what I see when I look at the gospel message is um, is a Christ figure who says to us or shows us through his words and actions that the powers and principalities of evil on this earth are very strong and they are out for our demise and for our death. And every time that we stand up in the face of that, every time we speak back, every time we affirm the full humanity um, and the reflection of the image of divine that happens in every single being and every part of creation, from the person with a disability to someone with a disease, from women to the most important uh, religious leader, when we fully um, and authentically engage that, not just as an individual, but as a community of people and live into faithful relationship with each other as people for whom uh, are chosen family and seeking the same end, that that is very dangerous uh, to the systems of injustice and power that surround us. And therefore, the consequences of that um, are, are very often death. And yet, the truth that it is just what is that God loves us and God cares for us and God returns to us and fights alongside of us for life and for wholeness and for life abundant is also just true. And that the power that we have um, both individually as channels of God and also collectively as as communities is uh, is unprincipled is like unparalleled. And therefore, if we continue in that faithful journey, no matter death, no matter the persecution, that what is at the end of that is liberation, as new creation is life abundant, um, and that we have little moments of that as we go along the way. And Jesus and Jesus' story of resurrection feels like the sign to us that we continue to struggle in spite of the power and principalities that enforce such great harm on us, because we do know the truth. And when we know that truth. We must live in a way that embodies that truth, and we must share the good news with each other, um, which includes education about what is real and what is not real, about power and how it tries to steal God from us and how it tries to steal life from us, um, and ask us to live in a different way. And that feels like liberation in this moment, in this body, but also the steps that we move toward collective liberation, which is what I fight for and um, love into and live into every day. 
Well, that's that's you could have preached that last paragraph in just about any Southern Baptist church you grew up in. I know, right? They didn't know what they were getting. They taught me well. I listened real close. I I prayed about it. I connect to it, and um, and it's real for me. And so I just think, well, y'all didn't know what you were getting, but you sure did raise me up right, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people uh, have found that uh, you know seeds can be planted even if they aren't tended well that that bear pretty good fruit later on. Uh, it, <laughs> what you just said to reminds me a little bit, you know, in scripture in Job, where uh, I think it was the Shuite son comes after they've been grilling Job for however many, however, whatever period of time that was, nobody really knows. And he just said, I thought with age came wisdom. <laughs> and then you guys are out here saying things that are crazy. Have you seen attitudes change at all in the years you've been involved in this concerning people of faith and sexual preferences? Oh, yes. I just, I can't. Um... I can't overspeak what it means when people come out. And I have to thank the religious right for this. You know, they really just did some pushing. I'm from North Carolina. And a few years back, we had that God-awful amendment one where even though it was already illegal for same-sex couples to get married, they pushed so hard in order to cover up some of the other economic and social issues and get voters scared about us gay couples getting married and ruining everything. I'm not sure how they thought that was going to happen, but... What that did was uh, it really coalesced so many of the people that I know to have really hard conversations with their friends and family and come out. And so I just see more and more folks of faith, people of color coming out about their own um, sexual identity, around their own genders, around um, being in deep and faithful conversation with their friends and loved ones and asking um so many more people on a wider scale to really interrogate their own beliefs and make a choice between whether or not they believe that their beloved child or neighbor or friend is evil or wrong or threatening their family um, by living into their authentic selves or not. And I just feel very hopeful for the ways it's slower in some places and with some people than others. But I just... Um, I am inspired continuously by the bravery of young people and people of all ages to come out of the closet and to be who they are and try to live in that way and also to live faithfully and come out as people of faith and try to reconcile those, even if for many of us at some point in our lives, it seems unreconcilable. And the way that I feel like being in relationship with other people, it just is um, very difficult for someone to over and over again continue to meet and know people who are gay or lesbian or transgender and continue to see them as other. Because now it's not, uh, oh, those people over there, it's my cousin, it's my friend, it's my coworker. And that example after example after example of good people being also queer or trans or gender nonconforming, I just think is the personal relationships that are powerful enough to do all kinds of brainwashing that we've been taught in culture. It doesn't mean that we don't still suffer incredible violence and discrimination, but what it does mean is that I feel hopeful, particularly among the next generations of folks, um, where, where gender and sexual identity um, are seen more as what I believe they are, which is our gifts to be discovered and things that can shift as we learn and come more into ourselves over the course of our lives. And that's really exciting for me. Well, I think uh, one of the things that was interesting to me in talking to you is 
I've been around a lot longer than you have. And, and, and there was a time when anyone who came out, there was either a very narrow path or no path at all to connect that to faith. Yes. Uh, the, like you mentioned the Bible earlier. It was seen either you've got to reject your heritage and what you think about God in the Bible if you're going to do this. It was one or the other. And, and there was really very few conduits where people tried to bring those two together. Um, yeah, that feels still the case in lots of places. I still talk and counsel many, many folks for whom the term gay and Christian still feel like the antithesis of each other. I'm here to share the good news that that is not how it has to be, but I I do still see that as a concern, although there are more and more folks who are coming out as both people of faith, of many faiths, um, but people of faith and LGBT. Yeah, that and that. Let's let's just quickly because there will be people listening to this who have heard of Soul Force and know all about what you're doing in other groups. But there are also going to be people listening to this podcast who just don't even have an understanding of the definitions. And I, I've noticed there's. It seems like uh, I saw LGBTQI. It just gets longer and longer, and people get confused that are not within in the inner circle. Explain <laughs> explain what that is exactly. Yes. Well, um, one of the beautiful things about this movement of people is that there um, there is a very expansive and ongoing acronym that really, depending on where you are and who you are, tries to encompass as many of us who are basically are not in the um, the normalized acceptable realm of gender or sexuality. So um, L standing for lesbian, G standing for gay, B standing for bisexual, T uh, standing for transgender, gender nonconforming folks, I for intersex. Um, There are so many more. There are same gender loving. There is two spirit. There are uh, asexual people. So there's lots and lots of words and different letters. And you can see the acronym uh, go out way many characters. And sometimes they put the Q for questioning or Q for queer. Um, And a lot of us would say maybe all those don't always fit together in the same acronym, but it's but it, the intention of it is one to be inclusive of gender and um, sexual minorities is the more broad kind of category of the right. thing. From a marketing standpoint, you really need a better name. But uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> well, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, particularly those of us who are politicized, really coalesce under the word queer. Right. I would say queer has been a response to that, which is a different I've formula. I've noticed that emerging in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's kind of an identity that says, no, we don't want, you know, to get married and have children and have the white picket fence. We may or may not do that at some point in our lives. But the point isn't to be just the same as everyone else. We actually want freedom to be able to express ourselves authentically and our desires and our love, not only based on who we have sex with or who our gender is, but just on the fact of being human beings. So um, have you been- so I really like and identify with queer myself, but. Um, for folks of an older generation, that term can be something that is really sensitive for them or um, doesn't quite fit. Yeah, so yeah. we use it was a, certainly an insult and something at one point in history for sure. Yeah, so we use LGBTQI as kind of a, a acronym that that tries to not mush everything together, but rather um, is inclusive as as we can be, but also just uh, recognizes that there are differences among us. Have you found people who disagree with your conclusions but who have been kind and warm and welcoming in discussion with you and talking with you? 
<laughs> uh, that's funny. I I am not sure how to answer that. Our organization is both made up of people of faith and people not of faith. Our common, uh, we coalesce around the idea that um, systems of power have weaponized Christianity in particular, religion in general, but in this country, Christianity, um, as tools of oppression rather than uh, as faithful expressions of uh, connections with creator. And so um, I am an ordained minister and I'm the spiritual strategist. So I am deeply a person of and practicing faith and, um, and so other folks have gotten to the conclusion that there is no God or that they believe in a different God or a different denomination or what have you. Um, and so we uh, are a group of many flavors, shapes, and kinds. And um, and so I would say that we rather start at the conclusion part, which is that uh, God has been stolen and co-opted by the religious far right and has been used to harm us. And therefore, we need to respond with re- relentless yet nonviolent resistance to those messages of hate and death. Um, but why we get there and how we get there, whether it's from a faithful place or a queer identity or a straight identity or a not place of faith, um, just is as vast and different as you can possibly imagine. I want to get to the the protests and stuff in a minute, but I think what I was getting at is, have you noticed that you're running into people now more who may not agree with you, but you can have more civil discussions and at least a a more, uh, I'm not exactly sure what word I'm looking for, a, a way to connect without being like, uh, you're the enemy and I'm, the, I'm, I'm your enemy, you're my enemy. Have you run into people of faith, particularly of any faith, that are beginning to at least have dialogue about the, this more than it has been in the past? Yes, I think that's all, that's the case more and more. Um, I find that people who, who are deeply rooted in their faiths uh, and care about God in particular, um, the Christian formulation of God. Um, if if they can get past their defensiveness of feeling like they're being um, belittled or threatened, um, are often very willing to engage. And and a lot of those folks, because of the insular ways that that uh, religious communities work often haven't ever met anybody who was um, LGBT or maybe they haven't had any conversation with someone who was willing to open the Bible with them and really look at scripture um, and, and ask really good relevant questions of their faith and how they understand God and who was God really. And so um, part of my work feels like it is um inviting folks into the question of ultimately is God a God of um, judgment and fear or is God a God of love and life? And that is a question I think at the end of the day that all of us people of faith have to make and have to live out accordingly um, in our roles in, in Christian and faithful uh, community. So yeah, I would say yes. And sometimes we don't even know. I mean, at our, uh, when a couple of us were getting arrested um, and the rest of us were, were singing in the lobby um, of the National Religious Broadcasters gathering, uh, um, some random woman who was attending the NRB came up with tears in her eyes and said, I just want you all to know that I support you and I hope for the best 
for you and I'm so sorry and um and I'm with you. And we'd never seen her before. She was one of the conference goers. So she was um, clearly not allowed to be LGBT or um, supportive of that. It's one of their mandates that you aren't allowed to have any pro-LGBT um, people on your shows. You're not allowed to express any pro-LGBT um, opinions or lifestyles or anything like that. So, you know, I I wonder about that woman who felt really compelled to come tell us that she supported us, even though we were there protesting the conference that she was clearly attending um, as part of the religious rights media hub. I'm familiar with several people who are members of that who have actually had people who are or uh, gay or lesbian for the first time in recent years on their programs and not to grill them, but just to, and not to necessarily agree, but to let them have their say, which is a huge difference than maybe even five or 10 years ago. Uh, I'm starting to see, but tell me a little bit more about the civil disobedience part. Why did y'all go there? Why do y'all, how do you choose places where you want to go and, and uh, put it, put forth acts of civil disobedience to attract attention to, and, and how that plays out. I know you like say, or you, you you're certainly smoking what you're selling because you've been getting arrested and you're doing the things that uh, are not uh, sitting back and waiting for media to call and, and doing sound bites on it. <laughs> yes, um, Salesforce has a long history of civil disobedience. Um, we now really employ a kind of multi prong approach of. Um, radical kind of political and power analysis to understand who the players are and what that means in terms of strategy, both uh, at a messaging cultural level, but also um, institutional level. Um, And we also do a lot of spiritual healing and reclamation work. So we've been um, connected with um, the NRB and really pushing back on some of their, um, hateful theologies um, for probably this is about seven years now. Uh, One of our former executive directors, Cindy Love, um, actually was on stage and debated um, one of the NRB folks um, in 2010. And that was our first um, public encounter with the NRB. And we disrupted one of their um, sessions last year in Nashville, Tennessee. And You know, this year was, uh, in particular, was um, a really a response to our community here in Orlando because the NRB has never had their um, their annual international gathering here, and uh, less than a year after the Pulse massacre, where we lost forty nine LGBTQ people um, in religious based hate and violence in this community where we have so many folks who are still reeling and grieving, um, and in deep mourning for, for those lives lost and the 53 others who were wounded that night and are still healing. You know, we, um, see it as a deep, disrespect and audacity of hate for such a group that has explicitly in its policies um, that homosexuality and being gender nonconforming or or being transgender, um, that those are immoral, disallowed, and is enough to get um, 
folks booted out of the conference to get your credentials revoked from um, the airwaves of all of their stations that go into 25 million homes in the U.S. alone, but all throughout the Americas and abroad. Um, for them to come here with those messages and to descend on mass to strategize the death-dealing theologies to our bodies and our peoples here in this place that is still suffering one of the largest um, genocidal kind of acts of hate that we've seen in recent history in this country is just utterly disrespectful. And then for them to turn around and use that as a platform to go after Islam um, and just continue their really toxic rhetoric around xenophobia and Islamophobia just feels like such a slap in the face to this community. We were worshiping on Sunday at Joy MCC uh, Church here in Orlando, just about a mile and a half from Pulse. And the minister there said, you know, it's a slap in the face. Hate came to Orlando once and now it has returned and um, and and really sees those as similar parallels of of pushing out the hateful kinds of theologies and um, using God as a weapon against our people and how dare they show up here. So for Soul Force, we uh, had doves, um, wooden and paper doves that were made and handmade and sent in from all over the country with messages of solidarity and love um, and protection for the Orlando community and um, for the people here. And folks decorated them beautifully, wrote messages on on them, and sent them here um, to be a silent yet powerful flock of protection and love for our community here. And so we brought those doves um, and those messages of love and protection with us and just basically to say that you don't get to come here and have your gathering and spend your thousands and thousands um, of dollars and um, strategize hate without it being contested, without someone saying, do you realize, did you do this intentionally to be so close uh to the graves of those that are still that we are still mourning, and the audacity of that um, was just too much. And so we came to bring attention to that and to expose them um, in that hatred and that audacity right here in the Orlando community, and to tell the Orlando community that they're not forgotten. You know, folks here are still deeply, deeply mourning that loss, and um, it's important to let the, that community know that we are in solidarity with them. Um, and we had folks from the Orlando community, people who were directly affected by Pulse, who came, um, as well as the police officers who were there and wound up arresting some of us, um, as was their job and their responsibility. And they were very clear that this wasn't personal, that they supported our messaging and what we were doing. And um, and we got to hear stories about folks who had spent hours and hours at Pulse and other folks who had some of their coworker, one coworker who had been shot in the head but had a ballistics helmet on and so was saved from that um, in, as a police officer responding to the Pulse massacre. And, you know, it was like that all the way through um, holding and booking, even from the inmates down to the correctional officers, down to the police who took us in. Uh, everyone was very sympathetic with really the pushback against such disrespect to the Orlando community by the NRB coming here this year. Have you found any faith traditions more open? I mean, obviously, because of the sheer numbers, uh, percentage-wise, 
there are going to be more extremists among the Islamics and among Christians than there would be some of the smaller groups represented in this country. Have there been any faith traditions which have been more welcoming to your message and what you guys are doing at Soul Force? You know, we really, we partner with groups from all over and all kinds um Sim, also, similarly, by sheer number, there are a lot more Christian groups who have um, communities of faith or statements um, of affirmation for LGBT folks. So we partner with a lot of folks from different from different religious groups and organizations um, and really are welcome and open to anyone who understands that uh, the Christianity that is being promoted and used as a tool of violence and hatred against our people is not actually um, a valid system of faith that is a personal expression that that folks live into. And so, like I said before, we really get folks from across the board. Um, and it's really that is the connective tissue rather than a particular my like a particular set of beliefs that say yes or no to the um, to the faith part of the work. How many times have you been arrested? Um, this is my first time being arrested with Sulphur. Oh, okay. Uh, I've been re- arrested two other times for civil disobedience in North Carolina. Um, That's as not part too hard the- to do, though. <laughs> no, uh, there's a lot going on in North Carolina, both as part of the Moral Monday movement um, with the NAACP and also in protest of the bathroom bill HB2 um, in the legislature in North Carolina. Well, you're you're, well, you're, the, you're the chief, you're the chief strategist, strategist for Soul Force. Explain, Explain exactly, exactly what, that, what means. that means. Yeah, spiritual strategist is a fantastic title that I love and want to keep forever and ever. I like it. I like what it, it. <laughs> what it basically just means is that it, most of my work um, is really about connecting with the theological. Um, ideas, dogmas, use of scripture, use of uh, church history or Christian tradition, um, and really tapping into the ways in which that is mobilized and co-opted for systems of violence, um, be that white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, be that um, you know certain political orientations or movements like religious liberty, and understanding how the opposition is using that, and um, and that is the one piece of like decloaking and exposing those kind of connective um, points between the politics and the theology, and letting folks see where how do they connect the dots between these things, um, in what ways is white nativism cloaked by um, Christian terms or Christian rhetoric. Um, to be able to expose that and see what it is. And then the other part of my work is really around um, some of the delving deep into my own um, study of theologies and scripture and Christian tradition to help folks engage with that thing that has been um, a source of pain or violence against them. Um, through their Christian connection, either culturally or specifically through being brought up um, in a religious, like a Christian conservative um, or fundamentalist context, and going back into that and looking at it and thinking about it anew and understanding how the Bible is used as a weapon and understanding how to diffuse that weapon 
how to be able to be in conversation that is both thoughtful and faithful um, and honest and real and learning some of the Bible history that helps us understand and put it in context for the for what it actually is rather than um, what some of us have been told that it that it's supposed to be. So it's those two pieces. One is around spiritual healing and reclamation, um, and the forward-facing is often one that is about um, smart tactics and, and understanding the playing field around religious dialogue um, and, and de-weaponizing uh, the religious content that is often used as proof of the morality of really evil and wrong um, ways of using politics or God to um, to lead to the deaths and violence against our people. How has the election of Trump impacted your work? Uh, well, um it feels like a. It does feel like a different a different moment than it was before November. Um, in some ways, um, the work now is around uh, the very most basic lifting up of our folks um, to be able to even have continue the conversations. I, I think that. Um, even though many, many, many of us experience racism and homophobia and transphobia um, in our lives, that there was um, a hope based on um, President Barack Obama having been our president immediately preceding this one, that the country had moved to a different place. Um, And at least among the people that I talk to most regularly and am in community with, it was a deep um, shock and reification of the understanding of divisions of racism and classism and um, utter fear and contempt for anyone who does not fit into the white middle class or upper class Protestant uh, Christian framework, either because of our color, our gender identity, our sexual orientation, our class. Um, And so folks are still reeling. It feels like for many of us that hate has come to America and has like, um, is is ruining the day, is ruling the day. And therefore, um, it we are in a position in which it feels like our very lives are at stake over and over again with each executive order. It feels like we are, um, upending a new, uh, yet again, uh, rights that we have fought for and affirm been affirmed in, um, legislative and executive powers. And here we are back again to just fight for our very existence. So, it feels like a different moment. I think it's been really hard for folks to connect the dots um, around the why so many people who voted for Trump don't see themselves as racist and how so many of us who are people of color um, see the, the election of Donald Trump as an explicitly white nativist um, positioning um, and Christian-centric positioning. And so a lot of our work in these past months have been around helping folks understand um, how to translate that and what that means and um, 
and helping also white folks understand that when people of color, particular black folks um, and immigrants hear phrases like, let's make America great again, that for some white people, that is an economic position um, that they understand it to be. Whereas with people of color, we see that very clearly as a hearkening back to a time where we had much fewer rights and where racism was very overt and part of our um, legal and cultural systems. And so it feels like we're talking across each other and there's some real important um, connecting the dots that have been happening for us around understanding um, that white nativism and how that gets cloaked in other language and often it gets cloaked in religious messaging um, around patriotism, for example. Which, and so, which ignores this, the real body of scripture uh, which addresses immigration and how we respond to immigrants. I mean, it's pretty clear no matter what tradition you're from, I think the most liberal and most conservative have problems reading past what it really says about how we're supposed to behave towards immigrants. Yes, it's very, very clear. And I think that that's why um, people who are not the evangelical right have a really, are just having a really hard time. They're saying this is hypocrisy in the most obvious and flagrant of ways. Um, And I think that what we are seeing is that for so much of the evangelical right, particularly the far right, that the religious, the religious framing is code for white nativism. And so for a lot of those folks, they are responding to the white nativist um, words, although they sound like the Christianity that they've grown up in, because that is also, um, you know, they say no hours more segregated than that on Sunday morning. And so I think that that is real in that um, white yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's church. real. <laughs> funeral, wait a minute. But funeral homes, churches, and barbershops. So let's do it. Right. Well, when we think about the legacies of the black church as compared to with the white church, for example, it's very clear to imagine how those messages uh, based on the histories of being slave owners versus enslaved peoples really are divergent, right? And mm. so the messages that come out are different and they sound different and they resonate differently, which is why we have 80% of black women uh, voting for Hillary Clinton. And while we have 80% of evangelical white women voting for Trump. And so there's like, there's something that's very important when we talk about the roles of women and all that stuff that are already very raced in how we are communicating them. And, um, and it allows for some incredible acrobatics, to be honest, to be able to say, yes, we are voting for this person who does the who has these very intense and antagonistic policy toward immigrants, even though our faith, which many of us say is the is the most important way we make decisions, is clearly uh, the antithesis of that. Fear yeah, does a yeah. lot of things. We, we you know, know we know what Pilate said he would do, but he wouldn't really do that. We don't think he'd really do that. Yeah. So, what what part you you, made, you touched on this, and that's what I was was going to get to is probably at least one of the, if not the most profound thematic thread that runs from the beginning of Scripture to end is reconciliation. Um, what part of what you do? is involved and do you feel called to be a person of reconciliation? Yeah, I think that there is, um, 
I think that there's both reconciliation with God and reconciliation with creation. And I think what we do um, for those folks who are feeling some dissonance between the religion that they were taught or that they are culturally attuned to um, being a part of the United States, um, there is a dissonance that happens happens when folks are don't fit in that system and that might be because of premarital sex it might be because of having a child out of wedlock or divorce it might be because of sexual orientation gender positioning uh, being single you know there's a lot, lot of different ways in which someone feels like the thing that they've been taught isn't quite that there's they're missing something or something's not quite right and it's really in those moments um, of dis that we see the opportunity to be in dialogue around what does it mean to break open your understanding of God and uh, the Word and and live into an expansive view of what God could be, of what creation could be. And the reconciliation that I find comes is often begins in one's own heart and spirit and the places that have been told um, that you're not good enough or that thing is wrong or that thing is bad, um, that those hurts really are deep, deep wounds. And that until we start to um, break open the possibility that we might actually be called to be our full selves and that living in God's righteousness um, is one that requires us to do deep work in terms of authenticity, of desire and purpose, um, that once we start to do some of that healing work, that the ability to look and see the humanity in others and the value in all creation is really what becomes possible. So that call out, uh, when we call to the NRB for repentance um, and the ways that their theologies and politics and uh, economic leveraging lead to the death of others, that is an offering of when folks who are part of that feel that dissonance within themselves, the opportunity for them to really do the work um, of repentance and reconciliation in their own spirit between them and God, um, but also to be a part of community that affirms life um, and not life with condition, not life if you pretend to hide who you are, not life if you admit that you have feelings for these kinds of people, but you choose to live in authenticity ways um, that do not express that that love or, or desire, um, but rather invites. It's an invitation to be in community um, and to let God be the expansive, um, life-affirming um, being that we all claim God to be um, in one form or another. So, you know, Salesforce has historically held open conversations between conservative folks um, and progressive folks for them to have dialogue. We um, often get emails that lead to email exchanges. Um, and a lot of our work is is really centering and caring for those most impacted and um, inviting them into, into community that allows for them to be both people of faith and queer people or to heal from some of that religious persecution and violence um, and enter into a new relationship and a new covenant with themselves um, and with God that really centers wholeness and authenticity and love um, that allows us 
I believe at least, to be able to see and reach out to the humanities in others. Um, what we're not talking about is reconciliation on an institutional level. We understand that uh, institutions like the NRB that are wrapped up in political systems that offend us, we're not after specific and individual people. We don't wish harm on any individual person, but we are doggedly um, and relentlessly going after the systems of power that harm us. And that isn't about individual people. It is that if if your position in an organization gives you more access to power and that power is what is harming our people, then you are absolutely closer to our target that we're pushing back against. Um, but it's a different level of engagement and institutional level than it is in an interpersonal person of faith to person of faith or um, you know, random passerby to random protester kind of way. Well, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that Jesus has said he's going to reconcile all things to himself. And the invitation to us is, do we want to be agents of reconciliation or do we want to buck against that? You know, what is inevitably going to happen? We can either be a part of it or we can be on the wrong side of history, you know? <laughs> Amen. But all right, these last questions I ask everybody, it's just kind of an interesting, uh, first, do you believe in a literal hell? Oh, honey, I think we're in hell right now. Uh, <laughs> I think that for me, what hell is, is isolation from God and from each other. And I think that that is exactly what we do to ourselves and to each other on this plane. I actually believe that after after we die, that um, that we are called, that the, you know, the scales fall from our eyes and we can actually see and feel um the ways in which we are interconnected with our brothers and sisters um, and how we are absolutely um, unable to escape the gaze and love of the divine creator. And so uh, I think hell is the isolation that we often put ourselves in and each other in through our systems of separation and isolation. Okay. Who is Jesus? Oh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus for me was a first century Palestinian man who, um, was chosen by God as an example, uh, as a witness, as a sign, uh, to the rest of us for what it means to live into purpose and call, um, into authenticity and knowing to choose a different path than the one that is, uh, a ascribed uh, to us by society or family or religious systems um, and to live fully and faithfully into the knowledge of what is good and true and right and to seek that all the way to death um, and beyond uh, as a sign to the rest of us that there is hope and uh, purpose in our work even when it feels like we are defeated um, or violated. What makes you laugh? Oh. Think about when was the last time you laughed really hard? I, my coworkers make me laugh in the ways in which we take our understanding of joy and divine. Dancing makes me laugh. A great orgasm makes me laugh. My seven-year-old precious child makes me giggle and laugh uh, all the time. Uh and a really beautiful worship song will often just bring such joy that I can't keep from singing and laughing. 
The, the best line I ever heard was uh, Annie Lamont said that laughter is the carbonated form of the Holy Spirit, which I thought was a pretty good. Yes, I believe that. I believe that. And the last question, Alba, is what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for me is my is that my great-grandmother, um, at 66 years old, decided to take me into her home as an 18-month-old uh, whose mother had just passed away and raise me as her own. And, um, she did that with, um, all kinds of complicated politics and religious beliefs, but she loved me deeply and unconditionally. And, um, what an incredible gift and testimony to how one can live in the world. And what point, what part do you see kindness play in the rest of your life? You know, there's um, a meme that goes around the internet every so often, which says, be kind, everyone is going through something. And I think that there is just something very real <laughs> about that being true. And um, and be kind is one of my own mottos um, for myself, just in the, in the small things, in the daily things. I think kindnesses are the balm that can that can make an unbearable day just a little more bearable or can make a joyful day um, absolutely divine. So it feels really, kindness feels like a very important first step in civility and um, community with all beings. Listen, I've enjoyed our chat. This has been fun. I know. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. It is always a joy to talk to somebody who has a passion, um, who understands that, uh, you know, the fruits of the spirit's kindness we were talking about there at the very end and who really just has, has a wonderful heart and is out there trying to do something to make the world a better place. Um, that's, those are the kind of voices and the kind of folks we're looking for here, uh, on the thinking God podcast. And I hope to continue to bring those to you. I appreciate again, all of the email I've been getting and, I have received uh, more than I expected, and I appreciate all the suggestions for guests. And we've got a good lineup coming here in the months ahead as we line them up in a busy time of year trying to get people lined up for the interviews. But as we get them done, we'll post the new Thinking God podcast. And I hope you'll stay with us. You can visit us at uh, thinkinggod.com. And that site is being overhauled even as we speak. And you can also find us at thinkinggod.podbean.com. And we're also available on iTunes, Google Play, and any place else that you've got a podcast app that you can find podcasts. Just look at the Thinking God podcast. So until next time, when you get out and do something to make the world a better place. Got you through a cloudy day When the stars ain't shining bright You feel like you've lost your way When the candlelight of home burns so very far away
make it on 